The Copywriter Club podcast is sponsored by Airstory, the writing platform for professional writers who want to get more done in half the time. Learn more at airstory.co forward slash club. What if you could hang out with seriously talented copywriters and other experts, ask them about their successes and failures, their work processes and their habits, then steal an idea or two to inspire your own work? That's what Kira and I do every week at the Copywriter Club podcast. You're invited to join the club for episode 91 as we chat with copywriter and author of Mass Persuasion Method, Bushra Azhar, about her story, persuasion triggers and why you need to use them, and how she's found success creating programs for entrepreneurs, what she wishes she had done differently, and her advice for copywriters who want to grow quickly. Welcome, Bushra. Hey, Bushra. Hey, Kira. Hey, Rob. Thank you so much for having me. It is an utter honor. And yes, I just clapped my hands. So if you heard a blast <laughs> in your ear, I'm sorry. I'm clapping too. Let's <laughs> all clap. Yeah. <laughs> so it doesn't look awkward. So I don't look like a two-year-old. But thank you so much for having me. It is an utter pleasure. I'm very excited. No, we're great. You've been at the top of our list, actually. We've wanted to have you on the podcast for a while. So glad that you're finally here. And Bushra, a great place to start is just with your story, especially for anyone who has not heard of you before. How did you end up running your business and copywriting and persuasion? Oh, okay. So first of all, thank you so much. This is a funny, funny note that I will tell you, which I think it is probably like I'm making a massive boo-boo in front of all of this copywriters community. But I have to say this, you just introduced me and you said copywriter. And the thing is, I don't identify myself as a copywriter because I've never taken any copywriting training. And when I started my business, I wasn't really sure which copywriting is which. So is it the W-R-I-T-E or is it the R-I-G-H? And I was like, okay, which one is which? I just knew that I'm good at using words to make a sales argument. That's something that I've always done. That was has always been my strength. But I never really thought there was a need for something like this. So when I started my business, I positioned myself as a persuasion strategist. I was not comfortable calling myself a copywriter, even though a lot of what I do is copywriting. But if you were to Uh, mention copywriting principles, I would not know what they are, simply because I've never been formally trained as a copywriter. So I was in consulting. Okay, I changed a gazillion professions. But the last thing that I was doing was I was working as a consultant in Saudi Arabia, an expat in Saudi, uh, worked with some of the really big Saudi companies. It was really great. And then I decided to dip my toes into this murky waters of online business. Started 2014 and started this kind of like an experiment. Okay, I'm just going to try it out. I'm not going to tell anyone. Let's see how it goes. Most likely it'll fail and I make an utter fool of myself. I was like absolutely sure. So I never told anyone and I just started basically just put together a landing page, started writing articles on using the psychology of persuasion in business in different ways. Again, the same thing that I was doing in my consulting work, how to build a sales argument, how to build a pitch, how to craft a great proposal, how to craft a great email, really anything when it comes to written or in-person persuasion. And I put together a website. I started guest posting. And the very first client that I got was actually from a guest post that I wrote for Copy Hackers for Joe. And I'm eternally grateful to Joe 
for giving me that opportunity. So yeah, that's how it started. Someone read my article on copy hackers, which it still is there. It still is very popular, still sends me traffic. And she approached me and she said, okay, I really liked your article. I like the way you, and I want to work with you and I can't find your services page. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God, someone wants to pay me money. So, and I just pulled together a services page like I would do for a consulting project. I didn't even have a PayPal account. So I created a PayPal account. I just sent her a link and she sent me money. I was like, okay, what is this? What's going on here? So again, that's how it started. And then from then on, now it. It's still, uh, as you would probably agree with me, it still gives you a lot of joy when you get the ping of a new sale, but there's nothing like that first sale when someone trusts you and when you don't really trust yourself, but someone out there is actually willing to trust you and give you money. So you get that first client in, what were you charging that client? What were you doing for them? And how did your business sort of roll on from there? Because everybody loves that first client. Yeah. And we get really excited. We're like, hey, great, we can do this. It's a business. And then we finish up that project and then crickets. There's no second client lined up. So walk us through like the first couple of months of growing your business and working with those clients. Okay, great. So I walked you through the first three months because that was, I think, four months. So the first four months, July, August, September, October, almost four months when I was only doing client work because in October, I started in July. In October, I launched an online course. So when you have an online course, things kind of change a bit. It's not just client work, but for the first four months, now you have to understand I'm someone who's not a native English speaker, someone who has never been trained as a copywriter, zero online connections. No one knows her on the internet, at least not in this capacity. So I was known as a corporate consultant. I was known in that field, but no one really knew me in this new role, this new positioning. So what I did was I got that first client. I basically reviewed her website. Again, I don't know copywriting principles, but I know persuasion. I know sales arguments. So I basically helped her. I charged her $500. I helped her uh, kind of build the sales argument flow on her page, on her services page, on her product descriptions. So that's what I did for her. And then, like you said, I was like, okay, I got the first one. What next? Because I don't know what, what else to do. But that was a proof of concept. So I knew that there were people out there who was looking for help like this. I got the testimonial from her. So she was in a product-based business and she got immediate results from making those changes. So that was awesome. And then what I, which was kind of crazy considering that I was still working in consulting at that time. I was working full-time in consulting. I have two little kids. So what I did was I went ahead and I started posting on social media, in Facebook groups. I also ran ads for about, I think I spent about $100 to run ads, but I basically, all I did was I offered free website reviews, free sessions. So I did 100 free website reviews. I finished them all in three weeks. From those 100 reviews, 80% of those people actually gave me testimonials and Almost 50% of those people actually decided to work with me. Some of them worked with me right away. So as soon as I sent them the free review, they wanted to know what's next. And the others actually bought a course as soon as I launched it. So that was a huge game changer for me. Even though the three weeks that it took me to kind of do those 100 reviews, it was really painful. I barely slept. I was like literally working around the clock. But once that was done, I never had to do that volume of work again because I got that 80 testimonials for someone who's just been in business three months. That was amazing. And then obviously these people were raving about me because 
they were blown away that something free could be so useful, so valuable. So that's kind of where it started. I did a ton of client work. And again, even though it was paying me pennies at that time, because I was in consulting, I was already making six figures in consulting. So as such, the online business that I was running doing client work wasn't really bringing me a lot of money. But I still kept at it because I knew that I had to do this in order to actually grow to place where I want to eventually be. Okay, so going from July, it sounds like you started in July and then you launched your first course in October. That's really fast. Were you intentional from the first moment that you wanted to work one to many versus one on one? Even when you jumped into those three weeks of intense website reviews where you're like, this is going to lead to a course. It's all going to turn into this course. No, okay. no, 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 not at all. I had no idea. Someone approached me. So, in my head, a lot of the, so like I said, I started this as an experiment. So, in my head, this whole online business thing was, you know, it's, it's never going to work. It's never going to work long term. So, honestly, the course creation was never something that I had, I thought, okay, I'll build my list, I'll build my credentials, and maybe at some point I will do a course. Like I said in the beginning, I did a lot of things. And one of those things was that I was a university professor. So I was I was familiar with instructional design. I'm a good teacher. I know I could do it, but it wasn't a plan. I didn't want to do it in like four months after I started my business. But then someone approached me. She was a graphics design person. And she approached me and she said, you know, the kind of work that you do for all these people, the website reviews, if you could do a short video instructional thing on this, then I could do the design part. You could do that part. And we could just bundle it together and offer it as a course. And I was like, hmm, yeah, I can do that because I've uh, by that time I've done like hundreds of those so I am very comfortable just sitting in front of a computer and talking to a powerpoint slide honestly so really ugly course very simple we didn't even have a membership site we literally just sent people the link with the password to access it like it was truly ghetto <laughs> truly ghetto and I had a list of about 1300 people by that time mostly from guest posting very little ads and social media posting so I did a lot of posting on reddit which in retrospect was a stupid decision so I had a list of about 1300 people she had a list of I think another 1300 people and we just promoted to our lists and I think we spent about a hundred dollars on Facebook ads and we ended up selling oh my god that was unbelievable we ended up selling 320 spots what? In two weeks. Wow. Wow. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. I was like, what just happened? <laughs> uh, so that was like, but okay, you have to understand it's a $47 product. It's nothing. It's like a 35, 40 minute long presentation, but still 320 people. So when I got that the first, so that's about $15,000. And even when we split it and there were honestly, there weren't any expenses because I was doing everything on my own. She was doing everything on her own. So we literally had no expenses. And when we split it, I was like, what just happened? I made $7,500 in two weeks and it was just a presentation. I don't even have to, you know, sell it over and over again. It's just one and done. So that was really what got me hooked into this whole one-to-many model, which I don't think I really understood the impact that something like this could have on the bottom line and really the reach that you can have with something like this. So so that's what kind of turned me into a what I like to call a course whore. <laughs> because I was like, oh my God, I'm doing courses. And I've done a gazillion courses after that. Big courses, small courses, master classes. I don't even know how many products now. I think about 12, 14, I think, wow. products. 
So that's how it started. But I think a lot of that had to do also with the fact that the two of us were doing it together. If I was doing it alone, absolutely, I would not have such results. So I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that we were doing it together. And so that was, that was amazing. So I was going to ask you, why were you so successful so fast? Because so many copywriters listening may say, I want to do that too. But most of us aren't able to get that type of traction and sell 320 spots in two weeks. What worked for you? Was it finding that partner that helped you? Oh, so, okay, yes, that I think that would play a part, which is something that I tell people, you know, if you can find someone who's in a complementary industry, and you can kind of join forces and do it together, that obviously plays a part. But I think another reason and I would not say I was successful, I would say we were successful, because for her too. It was a little bit unbelievable for all of us, for both of us. Um, I think the reason it was successful was A, the price point. So a lot of people who bought the courses, and that was a time when Facebook groups used to work. Now they don't. So Facebook groups used to work, and I posted the link direct to the sales page in our Facebook group, and someone actually said, I've never seen, seen you, I've never heard of you, I'm not even on your list. I went to that page and I bought on the spot. And I've never do that. So I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that it was a very crunchy, very specific, very crispy offer. There wasn't a lot of fluff. It was $47. So it is the, the impulse buy purchase point. Also, the fact that it had typically it's either copy or design, but it had everything. You know, it had both elements. I would say that's about it. I don't think there's anything special. I don't think there's anything special that I did because obviously a lot of those people didn't even know me. So I can't even say that, oh, they were, you know, brand loyalists. No, they had no idea who I was. I have a really weird name. Someone actually posted another group and she said, I just bought a course from Buzra Ashar. I was like, okay, I am <laughs> not Buzra Ashar, but thank you. <sighs> so yeah, but I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that it was a very specific impulse buy, very crispy, very specific offer. So Bushra, I want to follow up on one of the ideas that you just mentioned, where you just said that that's when Facebook groups used to work and now they don't. And will you tell us more about that thought? Like, why don't they work today? And if somebody wanted to follow in your footsteps or do something similar today, what can they do instead of Facebook, which doesn't work? Okay, so to be honest, I think that was a very irresponsible statement to make. I don't think I should say Facebook groups don't work. I think I should say that Facebook groups were much easier to work than it is now. So now, you know, at Seth Godin says, marketers just spoil everything. <laughs> so I think there's so much noise and so much ache in the Facebook groups. And I have a really big Facebook group. So I can say that there are people who are doing so many things right and they still don't get traction. And I remember when I started, I honestly didn't know anything, but people were paying attention because there wasn't so much noise. So I think one of the reasons that it does not work as well as it used to is because there was far less noise than there is now. I think the other reason is that people have just started using it as a marketplace. Now, Facebook groups are not marketplaces. Facebook groups are communities. That's what a Facebook group is. But people have just gone ahead. I have 20,000 people in my group, and I can say that about 18,000 of those actually see it as a place where they can actually come and promote because it's a promo-free group. As in, I don't know. It's a group where I allow people to promote, which is very rare. And the reason I allow people to promote is because I want them to get good at this, but somehow they're not getting the memo. Nobody's getting good at this. They use the same old formula, swipe, engagement posts that don't do anything. So one of the things that I did when I was actually promoting my free sessions in Facebook groups, which I've taught people to do, but honestly, I haven't seen anyone 
follow through on that. And I told them, people in my community, I said, I used to go into Facebook groups and I used to randomly go through the group timeline and just anyone who has a question with positioning or how do I say this and it's not converting, write them a damn essay on their trouble and do that publicly. What people are doing on Facebook groups is like, I will PM you. Dude, when you PM someone, A, it's spam. B, no one gets to see how great you are. The best bet that you can actually do to use Facebook groups is to actually go on and do the review or whatever you want to do, helping that person in the Facebook group, do it publicly. So not only does the person you're trying to help sees it, everyone else in the group sees it. No one does it because it takes too much time. So that's kind of my gripe with this. The reason Facebook groups don't work is because people have turned it into a marketplace where, in fact, it is a community that happens to also have your customers, right? So my Facebook group is a community that happens to have some people who would love to work with Kira and Rob, but it's not a marketplace. So that's why I said that it does not work as well. Yeah, no, that's interesting because in our group as well, it seems like the people who have been the stars in the group are the ones who contribute the most and and write that three paragraph response to someone helping them out when you're like, how did you even have time to write that? You're a busy, you're running a business, but those are the people who really stand out in our community as well. So Bushra, what stood out to me since I've been following you from afar is that you do come out and you kind of say, I'm not a copywriter. I specialize in persuasion and psychology. Psychology. And you really set yourself apart and you make yourself this category of one. Is that important today for all copywriters to figure out what that thing is so they can come into the room and say, hey, like I'm not a copywriter like everyone else. I specialize in this thing. Is that critical in today's marketplace? I think this is critical in any business. Honestly, there's a term that people use, the marketers use for it called the USP, but I don't think it's just USP. I don't think it's just a unique selling proposition. I think no matter what market you're in, no matter what industry you're in, you need to say what, the moment you have to say, this is why I'm different, you've lost the battle. You should never have to say, this is why I'm different. The way you introduce yourself, the way you brand yourself, the way you position yourself, it should scream, this is why I'm different. And no, I'm not talking about people whose only contribution to positioning is, I'm a six-figure copywriter. Six-figure copywriter is not a brand positioning. It is just a statement of fact. You know, that's not a brand positioning. A brand positioning is, this is why you should choose me versus anyone else. And yes, that does mean that you will alienate people because I have turned away a lot of work when people were like, oh, I'm looking for a copywriter and people would tag me and I would come in and say, I'm not a copywriter. I'm sorry, but I would love for you to check out Laura Belgrade, who I think is a genius copywriter. So the reason I say that is because I'm trying to establish my brand positioning and whatever that is. So as an example, it could simply be something like, you know, I work with non-native English speakers as an example, right? So I'm a copywriter for non-native English speakers. If that's your brand positioning, then Drive it hard, drive it to the point where everyone knows that if anyone is struggling, anyone who's a non-native English speaker and they're struggling with a copy, they know who to go to. So yes, absolutely, figure out what it is that makes you different and whatever that niche is, it could be anything. It doesn't always have to be a demographic. It could simply be, I don't know, the speed of delivery. You could be the 48 hour copywriter. It could be anything. It could be the speed of delivery. It could be the demographic that you work with. It could be the specific system that you use. But yes, there is a need to set yourself apart without saying, this is why I'm different. 
I want to change the subject just a little bit, Bushra, and talk about your book, Mass Persuasion Tactics. Did I say it right? Mass Persuasion Method, yeah. Yeah, Mass Persuasion Method. So will you tell us about the eight persuasion triggers that you write about in the book and why they're so critical? Yes, absolutely. So the idea behind Mass Persuasion Method is, and it initially started as something that I created in consulting called the Client Persuasion Model, and then I changed it to Mass Persuasion Method, and now there's a book on it, and now there's a course on it, and I talk about it all the time. And the idea behind the eight psychological sushis is that human brain is like an electric circuit. And if you want to spark attention in that circuit, then you need to activate the eight persuasion switches, eight psychological switches. And the one switch which we were just talking about, which he asked me, why is there a need to set yourself apart? So one of those switches, so there are eight, I'm going to briefly talk about all eight, but the one that kind of leads on from that conversation is called the parity switch. And really the idea behind the parity switch is that humans naturally do comparison, you know, whether it's choosing who to go on a date with or what dress to wear on a date. We're always comparing options, Like right? This is like human nature. We're always comparing. So if in your sales argument or in your copy or in your positioning, if you're not facilitating that comparison, if you're not stepping in and saying this is how it's different, either saying it explicitly or saying it through your positioning, then people will never vote in your favor because they are doing the comparison anyway. So unless you step in and say, OK, this is how this is different. And sometimes you have to be really explicit. So there's a course that I teach on the sales page. It's a course that's in a super crowded industry. On the sales page, there is a table. So I have a table on that sales page that says, these are other programs, this is sold out launch. And I literally just go point by point drawing a comparison because if I don't draw the comparison, then people are going to do that comparison in their heads and they may not arrive at the conclusion that I want them to arrive at. So that's why parity switch in whatever you do, whether you're selling a course or a product or a service or yourself, you need to understand that people are constantly comparing you to someone else. And because, you know, there are people who are like, oh, I don't want to be in competition with anyone. I don't want to look anyone look lame. You know, I don't want to come across as I'm the best. The reality is, even when you think you're not comparing yourself to anyone, even when you think that there is no competition, you're still competing against a no, right? The person can go ahead and say, you know what? Screw it. I don't want to do it. So, it is your job to facilitate that comparison. So that's like the one switch that we just talked about, the parity switch. Then another switch, which is really important, which again, as copywriters, you know, it's the prestige switch. And the idea behind the prestige switch is that no matter what you're selling, no matter what your product is, you need to position it in a way that it makes the other person feel like it will elevate their social status. It will boost their prestige. And I remember when we were in consulting, we used to go in and no matter what we are selling, we would always position it as how it would make the company look great or how it would make the person who's going to make the decision make, look great, make that person look great. Because one of the biggest human needs is to be better than everyone else, look better than everyone else. So an example that I give a lot is that when you're trying to sell someone a lawnmower and you talk all about, oh, how great the lawnmower is and how lush their green lawn is going to be, the reality is they are less interested in the lush green lawn and they're more interested in making their fat judgy neighbor next door look at them and think, oh my God, this person is loaded, right? Because it elevates their social status. So that's where really the prestige switch comes in believability. So believability, again, believability switch is we all know that you need to convince the other person about your product, you need to convince them about you. So that's all great. We all do it. But there's one other added layer to believability that most people do not address. And I would encourage people to address it, especially when you're trying to 
honestly, when you're trying to sell them anything, which is the added layer of making them believe in their own ability to get the results. Because yes, they believe you, they believe your product, they believe how great you are, but if they don't believe in their own ability to get the results, then they're not going to say yes to you. So if you really want to activate a yes in their brains, then you also have to make them believe in themselves. So that's really the believability switch, which has three arms. Believe in your product, believe in you, and believe in their own ability. Then we have the urgency switch, which I don't have to explain to you. Urgency switch is, you know, just they need to give them a reason to act right away because human beings are natural procrastinators. If you don't give them a reason to act, they will not act. Then we have the curiosity switch again, which is self-explanatory. Human brains absolutely detest an information gap. When they see an information gap, they need to fill it. So if you want someone to act, you want to make sure you get open an information gap so they actually want to step in and close it. Then, honestly, the biggest reason that I think that my business has grown so fast and the reason I think I am where I am is the edutainment switch, which is, again, the idea that even if someone is reading your sales page or listening to your sales presentation, they should be enjoying it. They should not be like, oh, my God, just get on with it. So you need to infuse humor and personality. And I'm not a naturally funny person. I have a list of jokes next to me when I'm doing a webinar and that sounds really lame. But no, wait, 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 wait. you have a list. You write out a list of jokes next to you so that you you can make them while you're talking. Yes, dude. I love that idea. I love that idea. So like knock, knock jokes or, or no, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Some of them are actually really good jokes. I don't have them today because, you know, I'm, I'm respecting your audience. But when I'm doing, especially when I'm pitching in a webinar, because that's when people start like, oh, my God, get on with it or they, you know, zone out. But when you have those small mini stories and small jokes and one of my best tips on using edutainment is because, you know, people are like, I'm not funny. I'm like, it doesn't matter if you're not funny. You can just take one liner jokes and then just use them in context. So it could be anything, but it would, you know, you can just use them. So as an example, one of the frequently asked questions on my sales pages where everyone has that frequently asked question, which is like, will it work for me if I am or something? So the FAQ on my sales page says, will it work for me if I'm a Buddhist monk, porn artist, insert unusual occupation? (laughs) (laughs) So just a way of kind of taking the regular statements and then just turning into making them a little bit funny, making them a little bit atypical. And I do that on purpose because sometimes, because we love our topic so much, we love our craft so much that when we're talking about it, sometimes we forget that, you know, we're getting very close to being professorly and boring. So, and I have that list always when I'm doing webinars, I have those jokes and one-liners. Most jokes are, Rob might not appreciate that, but the most jokes are basically kind of verbal abuse in absentia for my husband. So I just kind of make fun of him on (laughs) anything. That's the easiest one. So everyone now in my community knows him. They all call him the grumpy cat because I call him the grumpy cat. So I literally get emails was like, I hope you and the grumpy cat are doing okay. <laughs> so, uh, he does not appreciate that, but he is a grumpy cat. Anyway, so that's kind of the, the edutainment thing, um, edutainment switch. Then there's a switch called desirability switch, which again, something that you guys use a lot. The idea is where you kind of paint a picture. You, I think you call it future pacing. Yes, future, pacing. future pacing. So the idea is, you know, how will the next 365 days or the next three months look like if they say yes to this? And how will it look like if they say no to this? So that's where kind of you activate the desirability switch where you paint a picture and talk about, okay, how your future is going to be different. And then kind of just paint a picture. Imagine this, the typical way you could 
future pace would be you know you you paint the picture of a life after and then the last one is the relatability switch which again i think the the second reason that my business has grown so fast and i'm blessed with such great brand loyalty is because i try really hard to come across as relatable and again it is based on the psychological principle called the pratfall effect where the idea is that human beings who appear less than perfect are considered more likable people can relate to them more but the more perfect you appear the more flawless you appear people might be impressed by you but they do not like you as much so if you want to enhance your likability factor then it makes sense to share the not so perfect aspects of your life just to kind of come across as uh, less than perfect so that's something that i consciously work on and honestly i don't have to work too hard <laughs> my office my office is in a freaking closet dude i don't even have to work hard on doing the relatability thing So yeah those are the kind of eight psychological switches the parity switch the prestige switch the believability switch urgency switch curiosity switch edutainment switch and desirability switch okay and sorry and the last one was what was the last one yes the relatability switch relatability okay these are awesome so i'm going to dig into a couple of these I love the idea about having your jokes on the side during a webinar because I think Rob and I, Rob, we need to do that. We need to get our jokes ready next time we host a webinar. You're saying I'm not funny enough without a script. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I'm, I'm saying both of us. Both of us are together. <laughs> we can do this. So going back to the curiosity, and you mentioned open an information gap because your customer will want to close that gap. Can you provide an example of how we can do that or what's worked well for you? So I think the only way I would explain this is to make a statement that makes people go oh my god what if you can get that statement that can that reaction then you're good so I think one of my highest opening subject lines was nothing like the smell of harsh to start the day and the reason is like what did she just say and then you know you open it and because it it creates that what reaction now people expect that from me but if that's not your brand then you can do anything you know one example that i give a lot is subject line that says this is how your own mother is selling you out so when you use a statement like this people are like what my own mother because that is such an unexpected statement to make so i think the way i would use curiosity switch is to stay away from a lot of buzzfeed type posts mm-hmm. you won't believe what kira had for lunch you know just <laughs> stay away from the buzzfeed type posts and instead focus more on that get so when you write a subject line just or an opener or use them in the copy or whatever just go for that reaction does that get that oh my god what if you can get that reaction then it does create an information gap because people would want to close it okay and then back to the edutainment you do that really well i also feel like i've heard somewhere along the line that as a copywriter you need to be careful not to entertain too much in your copywriting because your customer could get distracted and almost like lost in the entertainment and then not driven to actually buy or purchase yeah yeah i actually do agree i call it the curse of the cute copy right <laughs> yeah right so there's so much cute copy where like every sentence is darling and love and lovely and unicorns and i don't know farting elephants and it's just so you know it's you you kind of detract from the subject matter so the way i actually do this is i i use it as especially when you're talking about a sales page i like to use it to break the pattern So like I said it's a regular frequently asked question but like one question in the frequently asked question is like 
what if I'm a Buddhist monk or a porn artist? You know, the other great place to use it is when your bio, because that also activates the relatability switch. So this edutainment and relatability switch. So I always use a punch of edutainment there. Also, not turn yourself into a clown, but use it as a burst of energy in an otherwise boring narrative, whether it is online, whether it is written, whether it is you're doing a webinar, you're doing a video, you're doing an interview. So like I just said, you know, I was talking about an example, cute copy, and I just threw in the word farting elephant. (laughs) It does not detract from the core conversation. The point that I'm trying to make is still there. But if you have to choose a word, then you can choose a word that's a little atypical and a word that could be funny or interesting. So yes, I do agree that if the copy is too cute, it does detract from the core argument. Because again, you're building a sales argument. You want them to focus on being sold to, but those energy punches actually keep them reading on more because it is interesting to read. Well, I think it comes down to the audience as well. I mean, you can use some kinds of entertainment in talking to, say, a group of copywriters that would fall completely flat talking to a group of bankers. I mean, there are probably millions of variations on that. So it really depends on who you're talking to, what you can say. I agree. And I think the best way to do this, and thank you so much for bringing that up, because in my past life, one of my past lives, because I have apparently way too many past lives, but one of my past lives, I was an accountant. And I remember that when you are presenting to accountants, it does not get any more boring than this. Like accountants are like the epitome of boringness. And I remember that there's this industry joke and I would use it. And every time I used it, Every time it would get jokes, it would lighten up the atmosphere and it would just kind of make it more pliable for whatever I'm trying to sell to them. So you can use industry jokes. The industry joke that I used to use was, what do accountants use for birth control? And the answer is they're their personality. So, (laughs) (laughs) so, So, you know, yes, even though you would think that it won't work, it actually does work because everyone laughs out loud. They're like, because that's true. And I'm an accountant. I'm married to a damn accountant. So I am in the best position to say that. Yeah, you guys are never going to have kids if you're not careful. So. <laughs> uh, no, we actually have two kids. And you should listen to our pillow talk, dude. We're so fun. Yeah. <laughs> I believe it. So I was just going to ask, you know, if there are eight switches, if copywriters could just focus on one, because it can feel overwhelming. I want to use all of them because I know yeah. they work, but I'm working on a sales page. Which one should I focus on first? Prestige, hands down. No matter what you're selling, if you can position it as something that will elevate their social status, absolutely. I would go hands down prestige. And then if you're in a crowded market, then the second would be parity. Because there is no way you can sell in a crowded market unless you draw a very clear comparison between why you are the way you are and why you're better than everyone else. So hands down, these are the two that I would focus on. I look at the list and it's hard to choose just one or two, right? The one that resonates with me a lot is believability and credibility because proof is such an important part of so many of the things that we write about. So I wonder, I think in your book, you share frameworks for each of them that are swipeable and, you know, you can sort of use them. But as far as like believability goes, like maybe just walk us through a little bit how we would use believability in a simple way to help our readers, our potential buyers believe what we're saying in a sales message. I have a really simple swipeable formula for the believability. And again, so there are three arms to believability. You need to have them believe in you. You need to have them believe in the product. And then you need to have them believe in their own ability. And 
that is the one that stumps up most people because honestly when you're selling a product you have you know you have testimonials and social proof and you have evidence that the product works you also have your reasons to believe as to why you are the right person but what stumps people up mostly is okay how do i convince them that they can actually do it it's that they are capable of doing this and what i found is the best way to do that is to use the two magic words even if and i have used it over and over again i talk about it all the time no matter what massive claim you're making when you are promising them a result don't just promise them a big result that might seem impossible to them because you have to understand if someone is 80 pounds overweight and you tell them that they can actually look like a swimsuit model in 6 months it might be possible but she does not believe in her own ability so when you throw in this these two words even if even if you have never stepped foot in a gym even if you cannot bear the thought of letting go of your favorite bread or pasta or whatever these two words even if are meant to address all her mental thoughts around why she can't get it right she cannot have those results so really the best way to do that is to use even if and do it prominently whenever you make a big result based promise always 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 include even if okay i love that so i want to just fast forward we started with your story of how you kind of had this instant success what does your business look like today do you have a team now i'm guessing that you quit consulting a long time ago Actually, I did not quit consulting a long time ago. I wasn't sure. I have a really low self-esteem, so <laughs> it took me a really long time to finally decide that okay, I think the business is going to work. So I actually quit my business after I made my first million dollars. I quit two years ago. Yeah, actually March. It's March. So I quit exactly two years ago. The business does not have a big team. I only have one person who works with me, and now I have a finance person because it was becoming too big. I didn't know any of my numbers. I still do almost everything on my own. I write all my own. copy i do all my own design i have a few support staff here and there are needed but the only people who are full time with me is chara who's my assistant and i have a finance person the business is multiple seven figures it is doing really well it takes all of my time i love the business i don't do one on one work anymore it's mostly courses coaching and softwares but it's doing really well i i love hearing how well you're doing but i want to ask where have you stumbled what are the things that you've done that haven't worked or what failures have you had as you've grown your business to this phenomenal success lots and lots of things lots and lots of things but for me i don't really look at it as a failure i always look at it as okay so this is what did not work so this is how i'm going to change it so as an example the most recent one i will tell you about so i was like I thought of this great software idea and I was like you know what I'm just so I launched it it sold really well people loved it and I was like okay now I'm just going to create tons more softwares but it did not work out that way because I have zero tech knowledge I have no idea how software works and it's virtually impossible to get someone to craft a software when you have no idea what you're talking about so I stumble a lot but what I prefer doing is that when something does not work I don't just diss the whole thing. I take parts of it that works and then everything else I will just I say that a lot my business is held together by duct tape and prayers. So I literally just duct tape things together and then just throw them out there and see what happens. So if you were to talk about failures, I would say about 50% of the things that I did were actual failures. I've had three massive launches where the moment I opened the cart my website crashed and I knew I knew it was because I was using a shitty hosting company because I was too lazy to change hosts. 
I've done that. And I still, three months ago, I did a webinar. I did half of the webinar all done. And halfway in, I look at my phone and I realize that I'm on mute. Like these are things that happen to me <laughs> like once a week, regular. I've lost count of how many times, but I don't look at them as failures. I look at the things, okay, so it did not work, whatever. Now let's move on and see what else could work. I like that approach. One other thing before we wrap up that I want to touch on, Bushra, you've done a really good job of building your own authority and your own credibility. I think you've had writing up here in Forbes and Fast Company and some other big publications. I'm curious what you did in order to get yourself on those platforms. So I have a very simple formula, a simple approach. I have always used it. I have, when, I, when I had a corporate blog, this is exactly the system that I used. Even now, I use the exact same system. This is how I got into Copy Hackers. And the way I do this is through Twitter. So go on, first make a list of people that you want. And I know that people are all about, oh, you should you know, have someone connect you with someone. I am not very social. I also don't like people very much. So <laughs> I don't have a lot of people connecting me to other people. So the process that I use is... Look at the publication that you want to get published in and then look at the editor for the relevant thing or the writer if they take guest posts. Follow them on Twitter, engage with them, get on their radar. And then if they're taking submissions, send them an email. I have a very successful script for guest posts. Yeah, and it kind of gives you the process that I use. So it's kind of how to find a blog post and how to find the names and the emails of the editors. Again, the hard way. I don't have an easy way. But when I started the very first three weeks that I started my business, I approached 12 websites for guest posts. I heard back from, I think, eight or nine of them. And I wrote all eight, nine guest posts in one weekend. And all of them failed. The only one that got traction was the guest post in Copy Hackers. Every other was was a big, fat doo-doo. Nothing came out of it. But I still did it. So definitely, it's a numbers game. You have to keep doing it. And then same for my corporate blog. I got picked up by Forbes. I got picked up by Fast Company. Same thing. I just went to uh, the editors. I engaged with them. I sent them pitches after pitches after pitches. And then eventually, you know, something would work. Wow. Okay. So Bushra, I still have a bunch of questions I want to ask you, but we are out of time. So please come back again, because we want to ask you all these questions. So in the meantime, where can our listeners go to find out more about you and your programs? Okay. So just go to the website. It's called the persuasionrevolution.com. I'm also tempted to say, just Google me. But since I'm not Kim Kardashian, I will just say, go to the persuasionrevolution.com. It's my home base. Everything just stems from there. Thank you, Bushra. This has been really incredible. And thank you for sharing all of your switches with us. It's been really, really helpful. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much, Rob. Thank you so much, Kira. It was an utter pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. You've been listening to the Copywriter Club podcast with Kira Hug and Rob Marsh. Music for the show is a clip from Gravity by Whitest Boy Alive, available in iTunes. If you like what you've heard, you can help us spread the word by subscribing in iTunes and by leaving a review. For show notes, a full transcript, and links to our free Facebook community, visit thecopywriterclub.com. We'll see you next episode.